We're going to go to the nation's capital, though, where there is pressure mounting to avoid a government shutdown. The next deadline, November 17th. And I talked with CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarland about the chances that this is actually going to happen again. If it feels like we went through this recently, it's because we went through this recently on September 30th. And the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, was among the Republicans who voted no on the plan to keep the government open 45 more days, keep the lights on, and live to fight another day. Well, another day has arrived. They're going to fight again. And this time it's Mike Johnson who has to lead House Republicans through this. It seems like another short-term deal is imminent. It's going to have to happen. I should say more inevitable than imminent. There's no off-ramp. And I think one of the things Mike Johnson has going for him, Dave, is he's holding a better hand of cards than Kevin McCarthy was holding. Some of his hardline conservatives who hate those continuing resolutions recognize they've painted Mike Johnson in the corner. They're going to give him the latitude to cut one. Now, apparently the the disagreement this time is over aid to Ukraine and uh, and to Israel. So uh, what's the issue? Who's in favor? Who's against? Let me say as, as the day begins here, aid to Israel and aid to Ukraine are both in a real fragile place, which seems crazy to folks considering the urgent need on both fronts and the universal support of so many people in Congress and so many Americans. The House Republicans want to cut the program in half. They want to split the aid to Ukraine from the aid to Israel, which puts the aid to Ukraine in jeopardy because there are dozens of House Republicans who say they're opposed. And even though there's overwhelming support for it in the Senate, if the House doesn't sign off, it doesn't move. And the aid for Israel is a different thing. The new House Speaker says he is eager to pay the $14 billion to give Israel what it needs for the war effort, for humanitarian needs, but he wants it paid for. He wants cuts to the IRS and some of what the president did to bolster the IRS last year. That has been a political hot potato for many months here, whether you should cut funding to the IRS. You cut money to the IRS, you end up You end up causing backlogs, wait lists, and the IRS pays for itself. It generates its own revenue. So if you cut it, you lose an awful lot of money on the backside. I don't know if that's going to fly in the Senate. I don't think it's going to come close to flying in the Senate. So the aid to Israel is in a fragile place. We're hearing from CBS's Scott McFarlane in Washington. I'm always surprised when they talk about cutting the IRS as a way to pay for things because there was that hearing last week where Republicans themselves argued that the IRS never answers the phone. What gives? And the commissioner said, well, that's because we haven't got people to answer the phone. So give us some people. So I asked Scott about that. And this IRS funding is a pure political move. Uh, as, as every time the IRS funding comes up, it, it, it goes back to very cliched sides. Here's the thing. The IRS pays for itself. You you, inf- you give them an influx of money. They'll generate more tax you know, enforcement, more tax revenue. It's It doesn't cost you anything in the budget in the long run. But there is a campaign issue here. If Democrats side with the IRS, you can paint them or paint them as somebody who sided with the IRS over Israel. You chose the IRS over Israel. Easy campaign ad to write. Um, but that's why this seems like it's so nakedly political. It's just not going to fly at the end of the day. Yeah. Is that rule still in place that allows even one member of Congress to call for a vote on the speaker? For now, although Mike Johnson has opened the door to it, he'd like to see that rule changed. Um, it's in place until the House votes to change it. Um, it likely would have to have a critical mass of Republicans to do so. So Mike Johnson, in this honeymoon period that he's enjoying, they want to try to leverage the honeymoon to make that happen. But it's going to have to happen in short order. So I'm telling you, these honeymoon periods don't last as long as they used to in Washington. Yeah. 
On another matter, I also noticed a growing number of 14th Amendment challenges to even putting Donald Trump on the primary ballot. Now, I, I'm, I don't know, that's probably not your beat, but I'm just curious if there's been any, you know, scuttlebutt about that around Congress. Yeah, I mean, this seems like it's destined for the Supreme Court. And that one of the reasons they're hashing this out in a court proceeding this week in Colorado is not just to rule on this 14th Amendment issue, but to tee up the Supreme Court to weigh in. What are they saying here? They're saying under the 14th Amendment, after the Civil War, it was codified that anybody who supported insurrection cannot hold or run for high office. But they're arguing as plaintiffs in Colorado, and will argue elsewhere, is that Donald Trump on January 6th supported an insurrection. They've tried this elsewhere in New Mexico, Dave, with a county commissioner who was convicted for his role in the January 6th breach, and they kept him off the ballot the next time up based on this 14th Amendment issue. So they're going to try it at the next level or the highest level with Donald Trump, whether or not this succeeds. This week in Colorado in court feels like it's headed to the Supreme Court inevitably. Yeah. Is there, I mean, is, is, does the timing work out? I mean, these things take a long time and the election has a hard deadline. Is it likely to be decided on before the election? They always can expedite um, at the Supreme Court. So, yeah, this is something they can hash out before the election and before the end of this term. Um, if the judge rules that Donald Trump can't be on the ballot in Colorado, that may not change the electoral count in November 2024. Colorado is likely to go blue. But, geez, it, it sure does um, make this an urgent issue for the Supreme Court to weigh in on. If there's a major state ballot in which Donald Trump can't appear, I don't think they'd drag their heels on that. Yeah. CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarland. Scott, thank you. Thanks, Dave. This is Seattle's Morning News. There is a movement to make Halloween safe for kids with food allergies. It's called the Teal Pumpkin Project. And to explain it, here is Tiffany Leon. You're with a group called the Food Allergy Research Education Group. What is, uh, what's the purpose of the Teal Project, Tiffany? Thank you so much for having me. And you're, you're absolutely right. The Teal Pumpkin Project is a movement to raise awareness of food allergies and to create a safer, more inclusive Halloween for all trick-or-treaters. And how does it work? It's super simple. You place a chill pumpkin on your doorstep, which signals to your neighbor's neighborhood that in addition to candy, you're offering in a separate bowl um, non-food trinkets or treats that are that are safe for kiddos with food allergies. Now, I must admit, I've never heard of a teal pumpkin. Where do you find teal pumpkins? <laughs> you can find them in a lot of the major retail shops now. Um, Fair is partnering with CVS this year. So uh, you can log on to our tealpumpkinproject.org. We have an interactive map where you can see the houses that are participating in your neighborhood and those CVS stores that make it super convenient for you. Oh, wow. So you can uh, you put your address on the website and so people can find you more easily? Yep, exactly. Sometimes uh, kiddos with food allergies like to plan their route to make sure that the houses that they're hitting are are appropriate for, for them. Um, but this way, you can also showcase how you are participating, whether you're offering bubbles or stickers, or last year I offered different bracelets or funky glasses. Um, so it really it really allows you to show your creativity. Okay, so these, these are alternative gifts as opposed to candy. Correct. Yes, correct. Now, are these teal pumpkins real pumpkins colored teal or plastic pumpkins or what are they? 
Uh, you can do either. If you have a little bit of extra time and want to show your artistic side, you can absolutely grab a real pumpkin from the patch and paint it teal. But the major retailers do offer either the teal pumpkin buckets or they have teal pumpkins um, that are plastic. Some of them, actually, the one that I have actually lights up. Oh, very sophisticated. So, <laughs> so Tiffany, how did you get involved in this? So I started at FAIR about three years ago. I'm a registered dietitian. I was working with a lot of kiddos with food allergies um, in schools, and I utilized so many of FAIR's resources, which you can log on to our website and see, foodallergy.org. And here I am three years later. <laughs> so, so, I mean, obviously, Halloween candy typically does have nuts in it, especially if you get the uh, the packaged ones. Um, so have we given up on the idea? Cause I, I know, um, having, uh, grandkids who, uh, who go to, uh, co-ops and daycare and things like that, there's this policy on, uh, allergy-free snacks, right? Uh, have we given up on the allergy-free snacks idea that you just got to go to inanimate uh, non-food objects for Halloween? <laughs> So one in 10 Americans has a potentially life-threatening food allergy, and that includes one in 13 children, which is roughly two in every classroom. And part of the reason why you're seeing these, you know, food restrictive policies in schools or daycares, peanut-free, for example, um, and a lot of the popular Halloween candies do contain these items like peanuts you mentioned, other tree nuts, milk, eggs, soy, wheat or sesame and some of those are the most common allergens in children and you know also adults but you can be allergic to any food mm -hmm. and so it's almost impossible to find a food product that someone would not be allergic to even if they're eliminating the top nine which i think is fantastic and then there and there are many of those on the market you could still have a kiddo that has an allergy to something else that might be in one of those products or uh, made in the same facility as something like that. So this way it just takes the guesswork out of it. Um, and you can offer something that's non-food and they can enjoy even, you know, after Halloween. All right. So there you have it. There's an alternative for those of you who want to make it safer for kids with allergies, but who also don't want your own kids to fill up with candy. By the way, is, is it okay for somebody without allergies to take a sticker? Uh, you know, I don't ask the child if they have food allergies or not. If they want the stickers, I try and have as many as, as I can for, for those kids. Yeah. That's probably less expensive than the candy when you come to think of it, right? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> it might be. Tiffany Leon is with the Food Allergy Research Education Group, and they are running the Teal Pumpkin Project. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me. Happy Halloween. Choke points. Let's go. For more than a year since some overhyped cargo hit the Lind Avenue overpass in Renton on uh, 405 southbound, and now it's got to be fixed. Here's Chris. June 2022, a trailer carrying a backhoe went under the Lind Avenue overpass of southbound 405. It was too tall. When the backhoe's arm hit the bridge, it actually hit five of the eight girders. The collision damaged it to the point where it's just more efficient to replace the entire span than replace the individual girders. The Washington Department of Transportation's Tom Pierce says the solution would have been different if it had hit all of the girders. It broke some girders, but it didn't break others. It basically broke every other girder. 
So going in and picking out a broken girder or two in the middle of the bridge is is pretty complicated and expensive and time consuming. So the overpass has to come down. Now only the span over southbound uh, 405 needs to be demolished. So Pierce says northbound 405 won't be impacted by this weekend's closure. We're gonna we will need a full closure of southbound 405 from 11 p.m. Friday, November 3rd to 4:30 a.m. November 6th, so that we can demolish the old bridge. There will also be some nighttime lane closures this week to restripe the freeway underneath for the upcoming work. A new lane configuration for southbound 405 through that area will remain in effect until the span is replaced. It'll take about two to three months to rebuild the north span of the overpass, and so we hope to open sometime in early 2024. I asked Pierce why it took so long to get to this. I mean, June 2022 is a reasonably long time ago. He says replacing an overpass isn't an easy job. First, we had to assess the damage and determine the best way to to fix the bridge. Then we had to create designs. We had to go out to bid, hire a contractor. The overpass has been open to bikes and pedestrians since this accident, but it won't be the case going forward. About 16,000 vehicles a day use that Lind Avenue overpass, or at least they did before June of last year. Southbound 405 drivers will be detoured off the freeway this weekend during the three-day closure at Talbot Road. The detour will take them down Grady Way and back on the freeway at the West Valley Highway. There are also going to be some nighttime closures of southbound 405 next month as they set those girders and this will kind of keep going with us until early 24 when they have that whole thing reopened so who pays for that well that's a good question i I mean right now i mean the taxpayers are beyond the hook i think at some point they are going to try to recoup that money from because they know who hit it the state patrol there's a you know they have a whole you know report on the whole thing so i think there's a way that you could go back and recoup that from the trucking company that uh, had that overheight vehicle i'd be curious i mean some trucking companies are you know like pretty low margin operations do they have insurance policies that can cover the replacement of an overpass yeah that's that's a great question i'll reach out to tom and see if he has a a good answer for me on that because i don't have the answer yeah because again this could have been anybody with a, a backhoe on the trailer not necessarily a large company that has those kinds of uh, security and the, the, on their backside let's take you now live to washington dc and david Farenthold with the new york times and um each morning i have cnn on here in the studio the pictures from israel and gaza are getting uh really intense their accusations of uh, collective punishment. Uh, Netanyahu is saying we are going to keep going until the job is finished. That means elimination of uh, Hamas. And uh, I also hear, David, there are rumblings in Congress, uh, at least among Republicans, about whether they can continue to support this. So where does it stand? Well, in Congress, this is you know, there's a new speaker, Mike Johnson. Uh, what he has said is that uh, he doesn't want to he doesn't want to do what Biden wants and combine Israel and Ukraine funding together. He also doesn't want to just pay for the Israel funding out of new money. He wants to cut other things. He wants to cut particularly IRS funding. Republicans hate the IRS, and, and Biden got a lot of money added to it during the um, Inflation Reduction Act last year. So he wants to cut it. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I, I think that Israel is too sacred a cause and the right for them to really say they won't fund Israel unless they get this sort of like a little partisan victory. Um, but that's at least the, the ground he's sticking out. I mean, this is his first fight. He can't quite go into this with Biden saying he doesn't want anything, you know, just accept Biden's uh, acts without condition. So does this mean, I mean, they got what, yeah, 17 days, basically. November 17th is the, the deadline to have some kind of uh, budget resolution passed or we have a government shutdown. Uh, is is this going to happen? 
Well, I think Johnson does not want to go into to sort of shut down the government less than a month into his new job. The problem is that the people who elected him, his the right wing, have said that they don't. You know, there's five or six of them on the right who say they don't want any deal. You know, they won't they won't vote for any CR, basically any any bill to fund the government. Uh, so he's got to try to find a way to negotiate with those people. The hope for him is that he's their guy. So maybe he'll have a little more credibility. And if he does manage to do what McCarthy did and pass something that has some Democratic support, uh, that they won't kick him out of the speakership. But, uh, you know, I do think we're headed for a last minute uh, sort of situation there as Mike Johnson tries to figure out how much clout he has with the people on the right. I mean, is there any chance they would actually cut off Ukraine and Israel? I don't think there's a chance they would cut off Israel. I think there, there are some in the right, including, I think, Johnson, who would be happy to cut off Ukraine or at least to you know, make Biden give up something else for Ukraine, make him give up IRS funding or something. Um, there's a lot of pressure from Republicans on the Senate uh, to, to fund Ukraine. Um, but the, the right in, in the House, which is who people who got Mike Johnson into his job, don't want that. So I, I do think there is some question about whether they could get Ukraine funding, you know, if, at least not as, as much Ukraine funding as Biden wants. Okay, uh, politics. The lawsuit in Colorado, which aims to use the 14th Amendment to prevent Trump from even getting on the Republican primary ballot, is uh, being argued today. And I'm just curious, uh, and I ask uh, our other correspondent, Scott McFarland, about this earlier. Uh, is there any talk about this uh, around Capitol Hill, the, the possibility of, of any of these lawsuits uh, actually having traction? I don't think anybody thinks they will. I mean, they, I could be proven wrong. You know, Just because Trump has managed to avoid other sort of extraordinary sanctions like impeachment, like lawsuits over the emoluments clause. You know, in the past, when people have tried to apply sort of little used laws to Trump, that doesn't work uh, because the legal system doesn't really work. You know, it has a hard time applying uh, an old law to a new situation without a bunch of precedent to guide it. And there is no precedent, really. You know, since the Civil War, we really haven't used that that clause thing that if you're supporting insurrection, you can't be on the ballot. Um, so I, I, my sense is that that will not go anywhere. It's just too new of a legal theory. But I could be wrong about that. All right. Well, I mean, that's that's two of you saying that this is pretty uh a pretty delicate subject to try and uh, actually throw a major candidate off the uh, the ballot. So I guess we'll continue to watch it. But uh, for people who are holding out hope that this will work, uh, curb your enthusiasm. The uh, other yeah, thing, I mean, go ahead. The judges have surprised us in the past, but I, I like, I, like, I think you shouldn't count on this as the way that Trump Trump will be defeated in 2024. Now, I also noticed that your paper, the New York Times, decided to. Uh, put together a compilation of Donald Trump's various gaffes as a way of illustrating that he, too, may have an age problem? That was a really interesting story. Uh, you know, everybody thinks that Biden has the age problem, and people are sort of conditioned to, you know, believe that Biden is the, you know, the one who's slowed down while Trump is still vigorous. But Trump does not make a lot of sense a lot of the time. I mean, it both, in, you know, like the other day he was in Iowa and forgot what town he was in. But also, I mean, he's maybe maybe age, maybe he spent so many years sort of steeped in a, a world of conspiracies. But when you listen to him talk, you have to know a lot of this sort of, you know, context to understand what he's talking about at all. He's a much different speaker than he was in 2016, uh, and you know, and much different tweeter too. Not that anybody reads his tweets anymore, but you know, he he is because of age and because of the sort of crazy sort of conspiratorial bent his thinking has taken. 
he's a very different person on the stump than he used to be. And I, I think people will see more of that in 2024. Hmm. Well, I mean, I haven't watched it, any, any of his speeches uh, in this current round. But, you're, but I mean, that used to be, you know, the, the riffing was part of his charm. You're saying this is this is not that? I think it is different. I mean, I think, A, that that charm has sort of worn off a little bit, but I, I think it's also that he was, in 2016, he was a guy who was used to sort of speaking to a broad audience. And he was sort of, you know, his references were to pop culture and, you know, Hollywood celebrities. Now, you know, you get a lot of things about these FBI agents who text each other. There's a lot of sort of references to things that don't, you're not really sure who he's talking about. He, he sort of speaks in a shorthand that only is known to people who are on the same sort of Fox News right-wing sort of truth social rabbit hole that he's in. But I think it's a combination of his age and also just the way his media diet has changed that he sounds really different. Yeah. The other thing that's going on is that uh, the president, the President Biden, signed an executive order that basically says we have to do something about artificial intelligence. Uh, I I read through the the various points. They all sound interesting. But uh, what exactly do you think is going to come of this? I think uh, that executive order, not very much. I mean, I, I, I think there is a need uh, or a lot of people see a need to regulate AI, to set limits on what it can do and what it does do and sort of, you know, give us the sense that there's not going to be a, like a Terminator situation where, you know, the AI runs away and goes after us. That said, I don't trust this Congress. I don't believe this Congress has anywhere near the technical expertise needed to set those boundaries. Um, I mean, they're barely able to sort of keep themselves going. So that's who would have to do it, and I just don't see them imposing any kind of order on this anytime soon. David Farenthold from the New York Times. David, thank you. Thank you. Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Robert W. Baird. Of course, following the mass shooting in Maine, crisis response canines and their handlers have been deployed. They help provide emotional support. Shirley Graziano from Cleveland is the handler of three-year-old crisis canine Zodiac and tells Spectrum One News. Specifically, our dogs are trained to understand that if people are completely stressed out or crying, they might come up to them and hug them. And in my dog's case, Zodiac has a big head. So people always comment, oh, my goodness, your dog's head is so big. Next thing you know, they're forehead to forehead with him and they're crying in his head. Graziano says the amazing part about these dogs is that they make people feel better after any unimaginable situation. They have to be able to deal with unknown circumstances. There could be an ambulance that rips by while we're interacting with someone and the dogs have to just ignore it, which they do. A man whose son was killed in the shooting also has grandkids and has planned a trunk or treat to try and help the community get back to a sense of normalcy. The little kids don't get this. They don't understand what's going on, why they can't get their candy, why, you know, why they can't have Halloween, why they can't go to school. And so Graziano and Zodiac will be at the trunk or treat and churches and greeting people to show their support. She says the dogs are like emotional first aid. Because that's ultimately the goal is we want people to get back to feeling the joy, whether it's their hobbies. We, we don't want them to be frozen in despair and depression. Graziano says Maine is eerie at the moment, but there are moments of hope and kindness. And now from the Gianursula Show, which starts at 9 o'clock, here is G. Scott. Before we get to the trade, can we ask G. about his his thoughts on the skeletons? What did you think about that? I thought it was gross. <laughs> I thought, 
like, see, this is, today on the show, we're going to be talking about why uh, there's a lot of teens that are involved with a lot of violent crimes in the country. Why a lot of teens are stealing cars. Why a lot of teens, we got some bad kids out here. Yeah. Don't listen. You want to know why? Because we got some awful adults. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? We got some bad examples. Mm. And this right here, no, technically, it's not against the law. But- Let's go back to way back in the day. Dave, you can relate to this. Anyway, way, way, way back in the day. What adult in your neighborhood would do something like this? It, Mrs. Well, yeah. Jenkins wouldn't do this. No. You know what I mean? Mrs. Smith wouldn't do this. Mr. Larry uh, over there would not. Nobody would do something like this. Yeah. So my point is, is while it's not against the law to do something like that, it it's is. just awful to do. So, and so, oh, somebody stole it? Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Yeah. I was sort of going, oh, man, the school's the school is the one bringing attention to this. Right. Putting up that privacy sign. Of course, kids are going to want to peek over the privacy fence. Yeah. But then I was talking to my husband last night and we were like, well, we live close to an elementary school. If we lived across the street, even if we were like, look at this. We would know not to put it in those positions permanently living across from an elementary school. So there's some common sense involved here. What what makes some like what makes an adult do that? I know. Like like why would you do something like that? You have friends like that? To get on the news? Like who yeah. has? Like, <laughs> I wouldn't even. I, like I wouldn't even be friends with somebody like that. Like we we'd be done being friends. Like well, wow. gee, whatever happened to you and so and so? Yeah, he put some skeletons in some compromising positions. We're done. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. All right. You want to talk about uh, the latest Seahawks? Oh trip? my goodness! Let me tell you something. John Snyder, Pete Carroll, and the Seattle Seahawks. Sent a message out to the world that says, "We going for it all, baby. Mm-hmm. We going for With it this all." One we, trade, we, huh? Yes, Leonard Williams. Now, here's the thing about Leonard Williams. I have been loving Leonard Williams since college, and he went to USC. And guess who recruited Leonard Williams? Who recruited him? Pete Carroll. <laughs> so he knows him pretty well. Yeah. So he was, why would the Giants give him up? Because they've given up. Right? Yeah, that, that that money. You know what I'm saying? Just you know, Giants. Like you want to make that move. You know, sometimes like it's like like relationships. Yeah. You might not work out in this situation, but it might work out in another. And I think in this case, this, uh, the Giants were also able to get some good love. They got in exchange for him. They got a 2024 second round pick. That's good. And they got a 2025 fifth round pick, right? So they got that, and they were able to, I mean, they still had to pay a little bit of his money uh, as far as that's concerned. It's a good deal for both sides. Sometimes you just want to make that deal. Do players ever pay attention to what they were traded for and be like, man, was I really only worth a second and a fifth round pick? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So that matters to them. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder. No, well. It doesn't necessarily. It doesn't matter, but it's like, man, that's it. Oh, I got that. Like, like for an example, my buddy Rob Sims, who used to play for the Seattle Seahawks, yeah. good buddy of mine. Every time, sometimes, if Cam Chancellor's name comes up, he always says Seattle can thank me for him because he was traded to the Detroit Lions, and Detroit Lions gave the Seahawks uh, that pick for the 2010 draft, and that was Cam <laughs> Chancellor. So they do keep track of <laughs> yeah, all that, like a chessboard. You know, Interesting. A little bit. But the biggest thing that they keep track of is the money, and the biggest thing that we Seahawks fans keep track of are the wins. And right now, the Seahawks, 5-2, and two, 
first in the NFC West division, and they bring in a defensive lineman like this, Leonard Williams. He was a pro bowler in 2016. I have always been a Leonard Williams fan. So when it came up that it was like, I know KJ and I were talking like, man, who, who can be, who can the Seahawks get interior lineman? I never thought that the Seahawks would get him. It would be like, well, of course the Giants not going to let him go. And they did, and the Seahawks got him. I was, I have not, <clears throat> I'm trying to think. I have not been this excited about. I was going to say, you seem genuinely. No, no, jazzed. genuinely. <laughs> like, no, I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. I think I haven't been this excited of a player coming to this team maybe since Dion Branch came over from the Patriots here. And that was back in almost 20 years ago. Whoa. You know, it's been, no, I'm seriously excited because of what he brings to this team. We're talking about a big dude. Has great feet, very athletic, He's and he. Great feet. Well, I'm not well, talking. About, I'm not talking. You gotta have great feet. You gotta well, have great hands. No, no, I gotta. That made you snort there, uh, Colleen. You, you're right. My bad. Because a lot of people, some people heard that and said, "Well, does he get pedicures?" That's what I heard. <laughs> I mean, he gets good. But if footwork. we're talking sport no, talk, you're talking saying he's football. fast. But yeah. this, but this, de- right? but this yeah. defense is over the top. You got Frank Clark who has come back. Of course, Jaron Reed came back at the beginning of the season. So the takeaway from this is this: you're bringing in a veteran. You're bringing in and just an all-out athlete. You're bringing in someone who is really good on the defensive line and that can really fill up those gaps. Six all foot right. five, two hundred ninety-one pounds. We're going to win out the season. And, 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 and good feet. And good feet. Good, good toenails. Seattle's Morning News. And uh, I can't count the number of times the words teenage and crime were in the same sentence in the news this morning. So we have in the studio King County Prosecuting Attorney Lisa Mannion and Kent Police Chief Rafael Padilla to join us. And uh, Chief, tell us first of all, uh, is this just the media or are you seeing a crime wave? We do have issues for sure. Um, We're definitely tracking um, the trends in terms of violent crime in particular. Uh, we are seeing offenders seem seemingly be younger and younger more persistently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have been tracking recently some of the uh, the carjackings and home invasion robberies, and we're seeing uh, offenders be, uh, you know, in that teenage uh, realm, which is really concerning. So, you know, that's why I'm glad for the opportunity today. Lisa, Manion, and I have talked a lot, and we're looking at some preventative measures for that. But definitely it is an issue. I don't want to deny that at all. What is it, do you think? What's influencing these teens to grab guns, put them in people's faces, steal cars? It feels like there's no consequences. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think there's multiple facets to that, right? I think, we, I think it's a great question to look at. Are our policies, our laws, and our procedures, our systems – are they having the impact that we want? I think it's a great question to have in a good discussion. We could spend probably a week on that. You know, looking at the data that we have and the cases that we have, it, it looks a lot of it seems to be crime of opportunity. It seems to be, um, I will say that it seems to be a, a belief that's out there that it's easier to commit crime right now, mm. right? And I don't know how to quantify that, but when you when there's a feeling that it is easier to commit crime, 
the human nature says that you're going to see more of it. So I think that is one factor. And Lisa Mannion, as prosecuting attorney, you ran on consequences, right? So right. how are you addressing this? Well, we file juvenile violent crime. We do not give those young folks a pass. We hold them accountable. Um, and, you know, we are seeing an uptick in juvenile crime. It was at an all-time low during the pandemic. And since the end of the pandemic, it has been climbing, but it is still not at the level of pre-pandemic. So juvenile crime overall over the past 25 years has been decreasing, and I think that is the impact of a lot of things. Effective relationships with law enforcement, um, providing services for juveniles who are facing their very first misdemeanor. Um, in Washington State, we have mandatory diversion for juvenile first-time misdemeanors. And providing services tends to help keep them out of the system. But when juveniles commit serious crimes or violent crimes or sexual assaults, we charge those cases. So did the word go out because it, was, it seemed to be more permissive before among teens saying, hey, you can get away with this? You know, I don't know if that's what teens are saying to one another. I hear that a lot. But what I can tell you is that we hold juveniles who commit serious violent crime, sexual assaults, we hold them accountable and we file charges against them. What is influencing the young people to commit these crimes? Because we know TikTok was behind the Kia and Hyundai stolen cars, but just read a story this morning of a group of eight to 10 teens in the Seattle area, three with guns. One of them actually pointed the gun at a convenience store employee, pulled the trigger, the gun jammed, and they think they're teens. Who is in? Is it gangs? Is it their parents? Is it media? You know, I will say I, I think we have to pay attention to gun crime. And Chief Padilla and I have talked a lot about bringing a two-prong approach to um, addressing gun violence, holding accountable the individuals who are causing harm in our community. And also King County in the um, public health arena, they have some preventative measures where they're trying to reach people before they become victims or perpetrators of violence. You know, so far this year, we've had 399 total shooting victims. 91 of those have been fatal. 308 have been non-fatal. Now, those are numbers involving adults and juveniles, but clearly we have a gun problem. A gun yep. problem brought on by what? Irresponsible the, gun ownership? Or again, I bring up gangs. Like, yeah. again, what influences a teen to pick up a gun? You know, we're looking at all those things, right? Um, it, I will be uh, straightforward with you. It, it is, there is a gang presence, and that's part of it. And the drug trafficking is a huge part of it. But we can't discount the impacts of social media, mm. right? When we see these, these stories or we see TikTok videos or things on social media, um, like with pop culture, and I hate to put it this way, but it feels like these crimes become a popular thing to do amongst our youth. Yeah, right. To show so off to, to to be a part of what's going on, to be a part of what's the latest thing on social media. I do think that is part of the issue here because you can see how something will go viral, and then there's a lot of copycats of that that go behind it. Right. Now it's illegal in many cases to hand a gun to a teenager, right? It's unlawful for uh, teenagers okay. to possess guns. Well, there you go. Now, I, what I never hear is a prosecution of the person who gave the kid the gun. I mean, I, I would think that if a few of those people spend a little time behind bars, you'd think twice before doing it. Well, sometimes it's really hard to determine who has given a young person a gun. But I do want to touch on something that the chief mentioned, and that is about you know, drug dealing and guns. Mm. So, so far in 2023, we have charged 267 drug dealing cases. Now, 10% of those cases involve firearms. So every day I have prosecutors working with law enforcement to seize fentanyl pills, powder, 
and guns and cash. Um, and so addressing that, I, I agree with the chief wholeheartedly. It's it's like we have to look at every single thing. Do you have enough officers in your department? Uh, when you say crimes of opportunity, it, it sounds like officers may not be around to catch them. I was really hoping for that question this morning. Well, good. Let me be very, very clear and unequivocal. No. Washington state ranks at the bottom of this country in terms of the number of officers per residence. And we can have a debate about whether per capita is the right metric. But for the city of Kent, give me any metric. Give me calls for service. Give me priority 911 calls. Give me overdose response. Mm -hmm. And give me call time metrics. And I will tell you, we are woefully understaffed in this region, in this state. Um, We are close to almost half of what we should be just to be at the average in our country. Mm -hmm. To paint a picture for, for the listeners today, just to be average in terms of what other states staff in terms of law enforcement, we need 7,000 new officers today. Wow. And we've been this way for 13 plus years now. What does it take? I, I think it's fair to say that defund the police has been discredited as a, as a tactic now. But, uh, and, and still, though, it's tough to get recruits, isn't it? I Actually, I'm going to buck that a little bit, Dave. It's, it is difficult to get recruits, but it can be done. Mm-hmm. We have been fully staffed in Kent now running on four months. Mm-hmm. We pulled off the miracle. It can be due. Law enforcement is still a noble calling. And there are still lots of young people, inspired, committed, compassionate, with the right skills, very intelligent, who want to do this job. What we have to do is change the way that we've been recruiting. We have to change the way in which we approach people. We have to show them that we're a good organization to, to be. And what's, what's also very, very telling in every interview that I sit in for a new hire, new officer, they're 20-something, and they ask me, well, I have support from my elected officials. Yeah. That is a consistent question. That matters to them. What do you tell them? And we tell them, yes. And City of mm-hmm. Kent, I've got, I've got Dana Ralph and a great city council. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they are as supportive as you can be. But the challenge is resourcing and structuring the funding for law enforcement and how we prioritize that. Right now, you know, there is no dedicated state-level funding for law enforcement. It's left to the municipalities. And so if you have the revenue source, because let's face it, law enforcement is very expensive. There's no two ways about that. But if you're you're a city that has the revenue source, then then life's good. But if you're in a lower socioeconomic situation like most of South King, those revenue sources aren't there. Yeah. Um, and Lisa, do you do you feel that there is the political support now that you can you can tell recruits that well, yes, you'll get support? Well, absolutely, because we need law enforcement. They're important partners to our work. And I would be remiss if I didn't call out the noble and great police work of Kent PD. So I just want to call out Detectives Lorette, Grace, um, Yagi, and Sergeant Whitley. Their police work solved a violent home invasion robbery, and we were able to rush file charges against the defendant, attempted burglary first degree with a firearm enhancement, burglary first degree with a firearm enhancement, unlawful imprisonment with a firearm enhancement, and we were able to make arguments that this person be held on a million dollars bail. Mm. That is because of the great police work of Kent PD. Thank you both for for coming in. Lisa Mannion, King County Prosecuting Attorney and Kent Police Chief Rafael Padilla. Thank you both. And that is Mickey time. Who are you going to call? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Mickey Gomez. <laughs> sort of dressed like the Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters. It is freezing cold in this it studio really right now. Thank you. <laughs> Didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about uh, trick-or-treating. And the mm-hmm. question of the day is, just how long do you pursue your trick-or-treating career? When do you finally, when should you officially age out? Never. 
Never. Never. Never. Uh, you would go today as an adult who can buy their own candy? I mean, I'm not going to go uh, like and ring, you know, doorbells and say trick or treat, but I'm going to go with oh. my kids. And my kids have asked and requested this year that I finally dress up for the first time. Well, those are two fundamentally different questions. Mm-hmm. I yes. thought we were asking how old is too old to ring a doorbell and say trick or treat and collect the candy? Of course you want to go well, with your kids. Well, okay. When you're, I, I, I would say 18, TikTok influencer Sarah Nicole Landry made a video about teenagers dressing up for Halloween and trick or treating. Her video went viral. I mean, I'm talking thousands of comments, and here's what she said. I like to share every year about teenagers trick-or-treating and not just being tolerant of them coming to your door, but being enthusiastic. They're kids, but they're right on the end. So she says... So with the music. No, she so says, dramatic. I know, but she says... She says, let them be kids. Yeah. You know, because. I get it, but you don't need the emotionally manipulative music to make Well, come your on. Point. She's a TikTok influencer. Okay, she sure. wanted to make a point. She wanted to go viral. <laughs> but I think she has a really good point. And that point is, is that some teenagers, you know, feel overwhelmed about becoming an adult. Some teens are thinking, oh my gosh, this is the last year that I can possibly trick or treat. I mean, I, I read in the Seattle Times some, munici- some municipalities in the country don't allow trick or treating after a certain age. Like what? Portsmouth, wow. yeah, Portsmouth, Virginia. Trick or treating is limited to those twelve years who's, old. Who's I younger trick or treaters? Are police out there? I Well, some of the police. I, I, well, my wife is five foot. She's going as Gamora tonight. She can get away with going trick or treat. You know, you seriously, police out there. Can I see your ID, son? Oh, you're thirteen in the slammer. Well, I mean, it is a small, minor misdemeanor, I believe. But yeah, they say twelve years old. Or younger for trick or treating. Can you believe that? But do they issue permits? Well, they say, and what they say, I know, right? You got to get a permit to trick or treat. Yeah. Well, what they're saying is that it really it's supposed to help and deter some crime and deter oh. criminal activity. Oh. I don't know, but I think you know you 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 should if you want to be fifty, if you want to be if you want to be Dave's age and you want to go trick or treating, do it. No, 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 he can buy his own candy. When you can buy your That's own right. candy, it's over. That's a good barometer. Thank you. If what? you have enough money to buy your own candy, why yeah. should you? Why should you go? Uh, take because it's fun. It is. No, and I agree. I think if you're a teenager, if you're eighteen or under, and and you want to go trick or treating, fine. Just don't come to my door and be like. Ugh. You know, you find that like when you reach those teenage ages, they don't, they just ring your doorbell, you just open it. Just phoning it in. Yeah, they're just like hold open trying. the bed. Maybe not even in costume. I've seen not some of the That's what I was going to say. I get like, listen, there's a movement too. There was blue buckets for uh, kids who may be nonverbal. And I get that. Like, I'm not saying if you're a kid and you don't say trick or treat, I turn you away. But you can tell when they're just there to collect the candy. Mm-hmm. And you're like, come on, like, give me a little, like, give me a little spin. Well, what on top you? of that, some kids <laughs> might be forced out of their house. Like, my mom mom used to force me out of the house to go trick-or-treat. Get out. Here's a bag. Yeah. Now go. Yeah. And I wow. would go. Harsh. Because, yeah, well, that's, that's what you did in my family. You know, <laughs> we were harsh. David, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I, so I grew up in a pretty rural area of like Seabex, Overdale, and not walkable neighborhood whatsoever. And so we would go to sort of one of the neighboring areas a couple miles away and everyone would walk around. And it was really fun, but I think what what I would be in favor of would be uh, almost like a city sponsored or a you know community sponsored trunk or treat. Have you guys been to a oh, trunk yeah. or treat yeah. before at, well, at, we at went a church to that. or what? Yeah, we well, went to and, a trunk or but treat do it on, on Sunday. A big big scale, and mm-hmm. it because for me part of the the 
issue is when you're not in a walkable neighborhood, you feel really left out. You feel like you have to go to a different neighborhood just to, you know, find the good candy. Why don't you give everyone a solid location, a giant parking lot? Everyone can, you know, have their fun, dress up in their costumes. They do that already. All that stuff. Well, but I mean, on a grander scale, Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a need for walking around the neighborhood when there is, you know, potential danger out there and, uh, you know, the the potential for crime. How about just really quickly, Mm -hmm. can we talk about age limit can we talk about time oh yes can we like designate five to eight o'clock maybe is the time trick-or-treating is allowed so we can go to bed and get back early treaters after eight o'clock we do sometimes yeah Yeah. some of the teens come out between you know and you know whatever they're out can we kind of because i don't want to shut it down but i kind of do because i need to go to bed how about you how do you feel about halloween being on the last saturday of the month rather than the 31st let's stop Mm -hmm. this floating holiday thing it's going to be a wreck. But it's mm-hmm. the day before All Souls Eat a day. I Dave, mean, you are on. so dispassionate well, about this. I well, can't believe it. I um, turn off the light at 8 so they can't even <laughs> see that we live there. Mm-hmm. And uh, once we're out of candy, yeah, the light goes out. What's your granddaughter so, going to be for Your granddaughters? A dragonfly. Oh, oh, that's cute. One's a dragonfly, one's a princess. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, oh, it's I can't really wait to see pictures. too cute even to think about. <laughs> I'm really excited that my son is dressing up this year. He's Doctor Strange. And then my daughter is the uh, blow up the alien that's taking the human. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, my God. Really cute. Is it animated? No, never mind. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.